0: I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast.
1: Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not
0: being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are,
1: how will we hold this, how will we hold the light inside the dark?
0: If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as the Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A.
1: My name is Carol Ferris. I live here in Portland, Oregon. I have been deeply interested in Jungian psychology for a very long time. I've been an astrologer for a longer time. I have a full-time uh, counseling practice here in Portland. And when Satya began teaching the Red Book Seminar, I took first one and then another, which is how I know some of you, is, for, is from the Red Book Seminars. And even though I know that the astrologer Liz Green, who founded the Center for Psychological Astrology in London, had brought a Jungian framework to bear on um, teaching uh, psychologists about astrology and teaching astrologers about psychology, who really revolutionized astrology in the 70s and 80s. And even though Liz has written two brilliant books about the astrology of the Red Book and of, of Jung's work, Nobody had written anything about the the timing of the events themselves because Jung documents them in his journeys. And so um, I said to Satya, I'm very interested in what is happening with him while he's on this journey. Because from an astrological point of view, his encounter with the feminine, Venus and Mercury, his encounter with with um breaking through the fourth wall and and breaking through to a different way of consciousness in astrology the 12th house and the eighth house are so highlighted by starting with his dream in october of 1913 of the flood in europe that's the first event that he documents and then his deepening process it can all be tracked astrologically so So I got very interested in not only his process and continue to be interested in it for my own development, but I am very interested in how it shows up astrologically on his journey. So that's why I'm here.
0: Beautiful. I love that. Thanks, Carol, for the re-exploration of all that and for introducing yourself. So I am Satya Doyle-Bayok. I am the director and founder of the Salome Institute, which started as a kind of whim, I think, about four years ago now and, and has really grown over time a lot with Carol's collaboration from the very beginning. So this is a sweet partnership for us right now. Um, I'm also a psychotherapist in Portland, Oregon, and a writer. And, uh, and I worked 10 years ago or so for the Philemon Foundation for about a year, sort of briefly. Um, but I got in that period of time to travel with the Red Book and uh, help set up the really the opening of the Red Book exhibit um, in Switzerland in Zurich, which was a wonderful experience in getting to work with the scholars behind the book and the editors and all of that. So and, and even prior to that, the The publication of the Red Book felt like a really magical event to me. Like it, it, I knew that it was, I mean, there was so much buzz around it, but it felt like I could tell in some fundamental instinctive way that its day was coming. And that, you know, this feels like a culmination some 10 years later, where again, the events of our existence, our world, our life, and the Red Book feel like there's a new kind of era uh, happening now. And So as Carol said, we're really trying to weave this, not as this kind of dead document, this old scholarship, but really trying to bring it to life for each of us individually and for the planet right now, uh, because that really is how, I think, how it was meant to be, how it exists. So Carol, our themes for today, you want to name some of the themes that we're going to be getting into?
1: One of the themes I am very interested in is is Waiting. Another theme is uh, dialogue with the devil you know and the devil that you don't, suffering and pleasure, and the question of fantasy mm-hmm. and of bursting into leaf and images of joy. Those, that's pretty reductive, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. Good, and
0: I think we're going to get into, maybe you'll talk to us a little bit about Lilith too if we've got time, but just from the early Christian you know, what projection is. And we're going to talk about racism and, you know, all that a bit, because Jung gets deep into it for a moment. So um, this question of what is really stirring in the projection inside of us around our shadow when we are raised in a lopsided culture and how that other side shows up. So Jung's encountering his own devil in this one, the red one, today. Do you want to get us started with reading a bit?
1: Yes. um, Before I read, though, I want to talk about waiting and this idea in a culture that is so obsessed with next, next, next. And I'm sure it was different in in Jung's time than it is now, but this series of encounters of of his civil war, killing the heroes, killing Siegfried, uh, encountering Elijah and Salome, and um, being brought to a point of waiting it, um, especially last week, when we talked about the crucifixion and about uh, him really beginning to understand the the mystery of of spirit incarnated, and the astrological nature of this time for him, December twenty first through what we're going to read today was the day after Christmas. It was December twenty sixth, nineteen thirteen. So there are these first night, second night, third night encounters and journeys. And a a significant part astrologically of what was happening to him is that he had brought his own nature and time itself had brought him to a crossroads, to an intersection. This is what's called a a grand cardinal cross where something in you in relationship to the currents of time themselves brings you into a, a still point of polarities. So I got very interested because at the very beginning of this reading, the devil says to him on page 212, your waiting has called me. The red one says to him, your waiting has called me. And so I immediately thought about the yijing reading, hexagram number five, which is waiting. And in a translation I have, it says, if you have sincerity, your successes will be broad and wide. Persisting brings good fortune. You do well to cross the great river, and then when it discusses the images, rain atop the sky, the image of waiting. You should find peace and joy in drinking and eating. Uh, That's interesting to me because of the struggle Jung is having about how to be at this intersection of suffering and pleasure. So that whole idea of your waiting has called me, that there is uh, this inner condition, not only in Jung but in us, where. If we can resist trying to grab it and stay centered in the middle of it, the worlds of sort of the machinery in which we live, the quotidian and the Newtonian and the quantum in that moment, that waiting, something else can show up. And I think that that's what Jung is is talking about here. So I'll, I'll read this whole opening section and then... Carol, um, I, you
0: and I both had a, a reading come to us that was outside of the Red Book around this. And I wonder if we want to just kind of as an invocation, I'd love to read a poem. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you can read. That's, and so again, this is all just getting in, but this first paragraph, I'll, I'm going to read this very first paragraph of, the, of this section, and then we're both going to read a little from outside the Red Book as a kind of invocation. And just because there's always more. At the end, during the Q&A, we have a new resident translator that we're gonna introduce and she'll get into some of the translation um, around this because there's some questions. So here's just this very first paragraph after the beginning chapter title, the red one. The door of the mysterium has closed behind me. I feel that my will is paralyzed and that the spirit of the depths possesses me. I know nothing about the way I can therefore neither want this nor that, since nothing indicates to me whether I want this or that. I wait without knowing what I am waiting for. But already in the following night, I felt that I had reached a solid point. Carol, it reminds me too, we didn't speak about this, but I had a dream two nights ago that was about a woman doing deep research on solidity. So I'm gonna to have to explore that more because I had not put that connection in yet, solidity. So I'm gonna read this poem uh, that many of you I'm sure know um, by Rumi, titled The Guest House, translated by Coleman Barks. Really speaks to me about what Jung is doing throughout the Red Book, but it kind of comes into this essence here after this waiting and the dialogue that arises. So this is The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house, Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that. The part that I I was telling Satya, not only the idea of waiting, but later when Jung gets into this and this is, this is Jung's version of this in this reading. He said, this I learned, take seriously every unknown wanderer who personally inhabits the inner world, since they are real, because they are effectual. And then footnote 15 says, as against this, the scientific credo of our time has developed a superstitious phobia about fantasy. But the real is what works. The fantasies of the unconscious work. There can be no doubt about that. So as we get into this reading, this theme of waiting and what waiting and welcoming can produce, and the question the question for Jung and the modern question, what can we trust or how do we integrate this that, that our culture tells us is not integrable in a certain way, so I went back to Ursula Le Guin, our wonderful Portland author, and she has, um, when, when Jung talks about fantasy and he talks about what, what, is, what to welcome and what is effectual, Jung gave a talk at the Oregon Literary Arts in 2005 titled Things Not Actually Present on Fantasy with a tribute to Borgias, the great poet. She says... The unabridged Oxford English Dictionary is a wonderful book. It's not quite Borgia's Book of Sand, yet it is inexhaustible. All we have ever said and can ever say is in it, if we can only find it. I think of the OED as my wise aunt. So I went to Auntie with my magnifying glass and said, Auntie, please tell me about fantasy because I want to talk about it, but I'm not sure what I'm talking about fantasy with an F, or fantasy with a PH, auntie replies, clearing her throat, is from the Greek Phantasia, literally, quote, a making visible, unquote. And she shows me how fantasy in the late Middle Ages meant the mental apprehension of an object of perception, the mind's act of linking itself to the external world but it later came to mean just reverse, an hallucination, a false perception or the habit of deluding oneself. And she tells me that the word fantasy also came to mean the imagination itself, the process, the faculty, or the result of forming mental representations of things not actually present. And again, those representations, those imaginations can be true ones, false. They can be the insights and foresights that make human life possible, or the delusions and follies that bedevil and endanger our lives. So the word fantasy remains ambiguous, standing between the false, the foolish, the shallows of the mind, and the mind's deep, true connection with the real. Beautiful. Yeah. So,
0: and again, just to highlight that that phrase of Jung's, which is so important when we're dealing with the value of psychotherapy, the value of art. I mean, all these things get, that get debated endlessly in, I think, probably all cultures, but certainly Western culture and, and what science does to us, um, that the real is what works, period. You know, this comes up a lot in psychotherapy around trauma work and all sorts of things. You know, does acupuncture work to heal trauma? Does there's all these debates? It's like, look, it's what works. It's not what science has decreed as valuable or not. It's what works for each individual patient. So this engagement with fantasy and the act of imagination, if it transforms us, it works and it is real.
1: It's such a critical point. It reminds me just a little aside. Um, I had the good fortune to hear James Hillman speak to a very large astrology conference in the nineties. And he, he's, you know, his son Lawrence is a very good astrologer. And so Hillman said he was at an American psychological association meeting and somebody looked at him and said about astrology, really believe in that stuff. And Hillman said, Nope. He said, but I don't believe in my socket wrench either. (laughs) no. and and that, that, that says it for me. He says, is it effectual? He used Jung's word. Does it, does it work? Does it work? It's everything. All right. Well, I will start reading and then you can get into the juicy stuff that the dialogue tees up. That's the other, for me, the big theme is dialogue. It's not that, that he's, he's weighted and opened himself so that something can flow that hasn't been able to flow. So starting on page two twelve. I find that I am standing on the highest tower of a castle. The air tells me so. I am far back in time. My gaze wanders widely over solitary countryside, a combination of fields and forests. I am wearing a green garment. A horn hangs from my shoulder. I am the tower guard. I look out into the distance. I see a red point out there. It comes nearer on a winding road, disappearing for a while in forest and reappearing again. It is a horseman in a red coat. The red horseman. He's coming to my castle. He's already riding through the gate. I hear steps on the stairway, the steps creak. He knocks. A strange fear comes over me. There stands the red one, his long shape wholly shrouded in red, even his hair is red. I think in the end he will turn out to be the devil, the red one. I greet you, man on the high tower. I saw you from afar looking and waiting. Your waiting has called me, Jung says. Who are you? Who am I? You think I'm the devil. Do not pass judgment. Perhaps you can also talk to me without knowing who I am. What sort of a superstitious fellow are you that immediately you think of the devil? Jung says, if you have no supernatural ability, how could you feel that I stood waiting on my tower, looking out for the unknown and the new? My life in the castle is poor since I always sit here and no one climbs up to me. So what are you waiting for? I await all kinds of things, and especially... I'm waiting for some of the world's wealth, which we don't see here, to come to me. So I have absolutely come to the right place. I have wandered a long time through the world seeking those like you who sit upon a high tower on the lookout for things unseen, Jung says. You make me curious. You seem to be a rare breed. Your appearance is not ordinary, and then to forgive me, it seems to me that you bring with you a strange air, something worldly, something impudent or exuberant, or in fact something pagan, the red one says. You don't offend me. On the contrary, you hit your nail on the head, but I'm no old pagan, as you seem to think. I don't want to insist on that. You are also not pompous and Latin enough. You have nothing classical about you. You seem to be a son of our time, but as I must remark, a rather unusual one, you're no real pagan, but the kind of pagan who runs alongside our Christian religion. The red one says, you're truly a good diviner of riddles. You're doing better than many others who have totally mistaken me. Jung says, you sound cool and sneering. Have you never broken your heart over the holiest mysteries of our Christian religion? The red one says, you're an unbelievably ponderous and serious person. Are you always so urgent? I would before God always like to be as serious and true to myself as I try to be. However, That certainly becomes difficult in your presence. You bring a certain gallows air with you, and you're bound to be from the black school of Salerno, where pernicious arts are taught by pagans and the descendant of pagans. The red one says, you're superstitious and too German. You take literally what the scriptures say, otherwise you could not judge me so hard. A hard judgment is the last thing I would want, But my nose does not play tricks on me. You're evasive and don't want to reveal yourself. What are you hiding? The red one seems to get redder. His garments shine like glowing iron. He says, I hide nothing from you, you true hearted soul. I simply amuse myself with your weighty seriousness and your comic veracity. This is so rare in our time, especially in men who have understanding at their disposal. Jung says, I believe you cannot fully understand me. You apparently compare me with those whom you know, but I must say to you, for the sake of truth, that I neither really belong to this time nor to this place. A spell has banished me to this place and time for years. I am really not what you see before you. Redwin says, You say astounding things. Who are you then? Jung, that is irrelevant. I stand before you as that which I presently am. Why am I here and like this? I do not know, but I do know that I must be here to justify myself according to my best knowledge. There is a line, to justify myself according to my best knowledge. I know just as little who you are as you know who I am. Red one said, that sounds very strange. Are you something of a saint? Hardly a philosopher, since you have no aptitude for scholarly language, but a saint? Surely that. Your solemnity smells of fanaticism. You have an ethical air and a simplicity that smacks of stale bread and water. Jung, I can say neither yes nor no. You speak as one trapped in the spirit of this time. It seems to me that you lack the terms of comparison. Redwin says, perhaps you attended the school of the pagans? You answer like a sophist. How can you then measure me with the yardstick of the Christian religion if you are no saint? It seems to me, says Jung, that one can apply this yardstick even if one is no saint. I believe I have learned that no one is allowed to avoid the mysteries of the Christian religion unpunished. I repeat... He whose heart has not been broken over the Lord Jesus Christ drags a pagan around in himself who holds him back from the best. And the Red One says, again, this old tune? What for if you are not a Christian saint? Are you not a damned softest after all? Jung says, you are ensnared in your own world, but you certainly seem to think that one can assess the worth of Christianity correctly without being a downright saint. Red one says, are you a doctor of theology who examines Christianity from the outside and appreciates it historically and therefore a sophist after all? Jung says, you're stubborn. What I mean is that it's hardly a coincidence that the whole world has become Christian. I also believe that it was the task of Western man to carry Christ in his heart and to grow with his suffering, death and resurrection. The red one. Well, There are also Jews who are good people, and yet had no need for your solemn gospels. Jung says, you are, it seems to me, no good reader of people. Have you never noticed that the Jew himself lacks something? One in his head, another in his heart, and he himself feels that he lacks something? The red one. Indeed, I'm no Jew, but I must come to the Jew's defense. You seem to be a Jew hater. Jung. Well, now you speak like all those Jews who accuse anyone of Jew-hating, who does not have a completely favorable judgment, while they themselves make the bloodiest jokes about their own kind. Since the Jews only too clearly feel that particular lack, and yet do not want to admit it, they are extremely sensitive to criticism. Do you believe that Christianity left no mark on the souls of men? And do you believe that one who has not experienced this most intimately can still partake of its fruit? The red one. You argue your case well, but your solemnity, you could make matters much easier for yourself. If you're no saint, I really don't see why you have to be so solemn. You wholly spoil the fun. What the devil is troubling you? Only Christianity with its mournful escape from the world can make people so ponderous and sullen. Jung says, I think there are still other things that bespeak seriousness the red one. Oh, I know. You mean life. I know this phrase. I too live and don't let my hair turn white over it. Life doesn't require any seriousness. On the contrary, it's better to dance through life. Jung, I know how to dance. Yes, would we could do it by dancing. Dancing goes with the mating season. I know that there are those who are always in heat and those who always want to dance for their gods. Some are ridiculous and others enact antiquity instead of honestly admitting their utter incapacity for such expression. The red one. Here, my dear fellow, I doff my mask. Now I grow somewhat more serious since this concerns my own province. It's conceivable that there is some third thing for which dancing be the symbol. The red of the writer transforms itself into a tender reddish flesh color, and behold, oh miracle, my green garments everywhere burst into leaf.
0: Carol, extraordinary. We we have to read the last three right. lines there because it just once we've read all of this, it just caps okay. us off, and then we'll direct.
1: Right. So and then we'll take off. Okay. Perhaps, too, there is a joy, Jung says. Perhaps, too, now that he's burst into leaf, there is a joy before God that one can call dancing, but I haven't yet found this joy. I look out for things that are yet to come. Things came, but joy was not among them, the red one. Don't you recognize me, brother? I am joy. Jung, could could you be joy? I see you as through a cloud. Your image fades. Let me take your hand, beloved. Who are you? Who are you? Joy? Was he Joy?
0: Oh, it's so magical. It's just so rich. Uh, And there's so much here. So, you know, a few things I want to just start to pull out as we dialogue together around this. There's so much symmetry between this red one, this male Coming towards Jung from a far distance, red hair, red skin, red clothing, and the Salome image that he encountered in a terrified way, you know, 30 pages ago or however long ago that was. And what we're going to see next week, we'll keep seeing this. But if you think of this archetypal energy, Jung is working with his own lopsidedness. He's encountering his devil here. He's encountering his devil his evil, his other side, his unconscious shadow element. And it's critical, part of what he's expressing in all of this is, his devil is not your devil. His lopsidedness is not your lopsidedness. What it may share, though, is that cultural zeitgeist, when a single culture has all the same temperamental um, persuasions and lopsidedness, that there are... All sorts of projections that come from that that can be shared by the community. And this is where racism and sexism and all of this stem from. That if an entire culture or a certain population is in agreement about what is right and wrong, then the wrong gets cut off and put onto the outsiders. And for Jung, what he's wrestling with, there's two significant types of outsiders for him culturally. One is Jews and the other is female. And Salome is both. So she becomes this perfect image of this young Jewish temptress, this, this young woman who uh, seems to embody the dancing, the dancing, the pleasure. We'll get into this too, but another possible translation of joy here that Anne has pointed us to, because we don't speak German, is pleasure. And that's the word that he was associating with Salome in the Mysterium. And that we're going to continue seeing is, He's refining his understanding of lust and pleasure and joy and fundamentally embodiment, sexuality, dancing, all these things that start to force a white male academic at the heights of patriarchal power. He's got all the power that he needs, but he sees that he's tipping over. This is the midlife crisis. It's the toppling over from lopsidedness. And he's in it. He's toppling over. So what helps him to compensate? And that's his journey through the Red Book is this journey of compensation. And this devil, the red one, is an extraordinary um, opponent for him that he starts dialoguing with. And when the devil says, you know, challenges him around his perception of Jews and challenges him around dancing and all these things, again, that's also Jung, right? It's another aspect of his consciousness that's helping his his sense of identity compensate for, for its racism, sexism, um, but just general unconsciousness, you know, and this is this rounding out internally of a personality.
1: Well, I want to just add one thing here. Um, I I want to go back to the, um, the horoscope and the grand cardinal cross and talk about how, how, part of the reason you and I are sitting here is because the, the spirit of the times and the spirit of depths that we are in in many ways are um, a contemporary echo of those times. So here we have Jupiter in Capricorn, we have Uranus in Aquarius, and we will see over the next weeks that all of these planets begin to mass in Capricorn in the way that all of the planets were massed in Capricorn in November of 2019 and intensely into the beginning of 2020. And Capricorn is the Western zodiac's name for the contraction of deep winter it 's the winter solstice and it 's when the light is inside the dark i, I won 't go on and on about this except to say that Capricorn, insofar as it is about how to hold how to create structures that hold value for the long term, represents the the collective will if you if you will, the collective stance about things about religion and Wall Street and politics and it thinks of building walls, it thinks of making things right and wrong. It also makes God, and it makes, not only does it make God, but it makes everything that is not God. So Jung here, these these inner dialogues that he's opened himself up to are, it's just from an astrological point of view, it's just so perfectly mirrored in the intensely, deeply, personal Mercury and Venus and Cancer, the heart, the, the, the heartbeat of something, and Capricorn, the collective st- uh, structural stance about, uh, about the way to be and what he's brought himself to. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also remembering not just about the Jews, but when um, the wonderful Fanny Brewster, who is, teaches at Pacifica, first came to the Oregon Friends of Jung and leaned over the podium and looked at all of us in her wonderful, wonderful way and said, I am a Jungian. I am one of four black Jungians in the United States. I love Jung. Three, she says, I love his work. I, I do this work. And then she says, but Jung was a racist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and then she reads chapter and verse, and you the, you can hear the entire audience, you can hear assholes slamming shut all over the audience mm-hmm. of, you know, and then when she's done reading, she leans over, and she smiles, and she says, but we're going to do something about this, aren't we, mm-hmm. and I think it's, I, it's this kind of discussion, and the revisiting of this remarkable personal journey that he went on, where he confronts the structures of the collective that live in him that keep him from a whole life. And this dialogue is a really great example of that.
0: Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just holding up Fanny's book. Um, the, the racial complex that just came out recently. Fanny Brewster is brilliant. She's yeah. an American analyst But I think part of what Fanny speaks to and what we're trying to speak to here is that we're all racist and we're all sexist. And if we're going to actually make Jung's psychology applicable to existence, instead of just this thing that people in fancy rooms talk about, you know, the important archetypes of whatever, it gets so, it's so obtuse. If you've been in some of those rooms, it's so abstract. It's like the abstraction of the abstraction of the abstraction. And A foundation of why I started the Salome Institute was to try to shift some of these conversations to the applicability in our own lives. And that if we don't acknowledge these fundamental lopsided uh, aspects of ourselves, then we don't acknowledge we're all participating in a racist, sexist, lopsided system. But that also reclaiming all of those projections goes far beyond just not being racist anymore. It, it it becomes a whole a, a rounding out of psyche and a reclamation of these things that we want to reject over and over and over and that hurt people and our planet when we reject them. So to to feel young, he didn't quite get there with Black Americans. I mean, his commentary on Black Americans is is troublesome. There's no question. It was also not a population that he was engaging with in Switzerland. But he he really wrestled deeply with this stuff around the Jews throughout his history. And there's a lot of conflicting history about Jung's relationship with the Jews that I think, again, some of it slides down into um, a kind of frustrating mishmash of of taking things that he's said out of context. Um, But you can feel here in this moment, as really took place in his existence, that he is trying to understand something. He's doing this by trying to dialogue with an inner figure really deeply, just as he did with, with Salome and Elijah, when he was terrified of this Kali, you know, murderous figure of Salome, he's working on trying to understand that he's not just bullying them over. And that attitude is the reason that I, you know, have so much love and affection for Jung and why he's been so important in my life is there's an attitude of, okay, I don't have to do this because I can live and die in existence with money and power and whatever, but something is forcing me internally to reckon with things that are off and I'm going to do that work.
1: It's profound. Well, he says a religious conversation is inevitable with the devil. He is your own other standpoint. That's right.
0: That's so this is page two Let's read Carol. You want to read that whole paragraph?
1: I would be fleeing if I did not try to come to an understanding with him. If ever you have the rare opportunity to speak with the devil, then do not forget to confront him in all seriousness. He is your devil, after all. The devil, as the adversary, is your own other standpoint. He tempts you and sets a stone in your path where you least want it. Taking the devil seriously does not mean going over to his side or else one becomes the devil. Rather, it means coming to an understanding, thereby you accept your other standpoint. With that, the devil fundamentally loses ground, and so do you, and that may be well and good.
0: So, you know, we've been talking, like, this is the corpus callosum again, right? It's, It's saying, if you're stuck in the left brain, The point here is not to then go get stuck in the right brain and lose the left brain. It's about the dialogue between these two sides of us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and he shows this in all versions throughout the book next week, in this extraordinary way, we're going to get into the masculine and feminine. But if you've not read this section from next week, you can prepare by watching Tootsie over, (laughs) over this next week. You know, this question, I mean, I really mean that the Dustin Hoffman speech at the end of Tootsie gets us right into next week's castle in the forest um about trying on these other standpoints and so here jung is engaging with his devil but it turns out his devil is pleasure jung's devil is pleasure right it's not it's not freddy (laughs) krueger it's it's a sexy young woman it's dancing it's joy it's you know, it's, it's this pleasurable, physiological, sensual existence, because, and it, this is Jung's language, which was born out of his exploration of the Red Book, he's a thinking type, he's an intuitive thinking type. So, so all of Myers-Briggs, many of you, I, I'm sure know this, but all of Myers-Briggs, all of that typological system comes out of Jung's psychological work, you know, the, the um, psychological types, Collected Work Nine, you know, this is where all of Myers-Briggs stuff originated, the idea of extroversion and introversion. He's working with these polarities all the time. And here he encounters his devil. He understands this as being a feeling type, you know, even maybe a sensate feeling, right? It is the opposite on the quaternity from Jung's fundamental standpoint. And he's saying, if I think that those people are disgusting and the devil and whatever. What I'm really saying is my embodiment scares me. My sensuality scares me. And so I need to then reclaim that attitude in order to become a whole person. And those projections disappear then as well.
1: Might be time to talk about Lilith.
0: Do it. Let's do it. And we'll have to get to questions too.
1: Our time as always. This has very much to do where he's, he's burst into leaf. He says, it's a risky thing to accept joy, but it leads us to life and its disappointment from which the wholeness of our life becomes. And then the footnote says, on footnote 18, on page um, 219, says, with this newly gained joy, I took off on adventures without knowing where the way would lead. I could have known, however, that the devil always tempts us first through women. Well, I might have had clever thoughts as a thinker; it was not so in life. There, I was even fatuous and prejudiced, and so quite ready to be caught in a fox trap. And um, I, when I, when it was first suggested to me by a colleague in in Paris that I begin to include Lilith as a part of astrological interpretation, and I went to the web and read up about her. It's like, no, I'm not including this woman in my interpretations. But I was intrigued, and uh, so I went. To Gilgamesh, which is where you, we first encounter Lilith, a powerful erotic demoness who lives in a tree with a snake and a bird at the palace of the Queen of Heaven. And Gilgamesh and Enkidu, as one of their, their adventures, cut down the tree, which is to serve as a throne for the Queen of Heaven. And Lilith flees to the Red Sea, where we don't hear about her again for about 3,000 years.
0: The Red Sea.
1: Yeah, yes. <laughs> so now the 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 Hebrews have been freed from their Babylonian captivity with the arrival of Cyrus. And they're writing the Old Testament and Genesis 1 says God created the male and female, he created them both from the same dust. And in Genesis 2, God created Adam and created the animals two by two and as Adam and God are naming the animals, Adam notices that he of all the animals is alone and asks God to make him a helpmeet. And God fashions Eve from Adam's rib. So this whole idea of how how does governance, how does social governance and self-governance come to reconcile Scripture for practical purposes. So it was when I read the Talmud, that I finally saw how the reconciliation occurred for purposes of leadership and, uh, and, a, and a, a Capricornian structure. How will we hold ourselves? So the, the writers of the Talmud invite Lilith from, they bring her back from her exile and they install her in a dialogue with Adam and God in the garden. And this is a, a, a reductive, but Adam says to her, I want you to lie beneath me. And she says, why should I lie beneath you when I was created from the same dust as you? And essentially, God steps in and says, because I say so. And if you won't be second, you can't stay here. And if you leave, I curse you with childlessness and husbandlessness. And she leaves. And then you get 2,000 years of porn about this powerful, dark, erotic, hungry, lustful person who won't be second, a woman who won't be second, where you, you, I mean, the the records of prayers and imprecations and uh, ceremonial bowls and on walls of houses in the ancient world, please, Rabbi, please write a prayer to keep Lilith from my newborn child. Please keep her away from my newlywed husband. But, but you get a culture, not just the Hebrew culture, but, but a modern culture that essentially punishes women for not being second. That, and if you think about all of the names for women who won't be second, this goes to the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, Jezebel, you know, slut, whore, crone, older women. That, that all of the names d- that we have for barren women or for women who, who won't be second, it's so, so pervasive in the culture. And, and, and Jung, I think, is really struggling with a cultural phenomenon at this point of how do you, how, what is it, how could you be joyful in your relationship with your own feminine side? How could you dance with her And so I'm I'm continuously struck again because Jupiter in Capricorn is opposite his Mercury and Venus in Cancer. He's finding his way to a different relationship with not only with his inner feminine but with the women in his world. You know, and that's a whole. I mean, that's a whole other dialogue. But
0: well, it's I mean, again, the irony. I don't know if it's ironic, but it's the whole dialogue. We're we're dealing here with our individual psyches and with the collective storytelling and it's not just the christian world you know this is this no. is this is this is a planetary phenomenon that we're wrestling with of fundamental lopsidedness and i think if we call it the feminine or we call it you know if we call it patriarchy or we call it white supremacy it 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 triggers a lot of people's reactivity for all sorts of reasons some of them totally understandable right but we're 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 still talking about lopsidedness it's just that it's showing up through projection yeah no and so the projection is what we individually have to wrestle with but then we're recovering the way that projection has been spoon-fed to us it's part of the milk we drink that and internalized say again and internalized. Yeah, internalized yeah so that this is good and this is bad and Lilith is a is you know a whore who wants to take your babies in the middle of the night and Um, And Salome is a temptress who cut off John the Baptist's head. When you go back into the scholarship, uh, you know, something isn't quite right in the primary materials here because it's all been interpretation, interpretation, interpretation. And of course, the people interpreting have been male brains, which importantly, the reason that that's important is because the lopsidedness there is very specific then. And so then if we all start to learn the lopsidedness of specific people, we all start to internalize the outsiderness in different ways. Again, prepping, watch Tootsie for next week, because it, it's all of this is how do we reclaim the other side? It doesn't have to be painful work on white supremacy and sexism, where we're all beating ourselves over the head to, to shift out our own identification with this, depending on our, our embodied who you know what born we were what body we were born into because there's lopsidedness everywhere you know but it can be playful and what Jung is doing here is trying to get into some of the playfulness to say what if reclaiming joy and reclaiming pleasure is actually what gets me there yeah reclaiming an an embodied quality of things is actually what gets me there it's oh it's just profound every time can't
1: mm. So this might be a good time to ask Anne about her, her translation homework around the, the idea of will and want.
0: And then we're going to do questions. We're going to invite Anne in. But I want you all to think of this as like, uh, you know, our nighttime talk show band. Anne, we've, <laughs> we're inviting Anne into our band. She's our, our now new resident translator. We've met her through the salons. We know her as, as Anne from Maine, Anne Carroll, do you want to join us? Where are you?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm here, and I just sort of uh, serendipitously fell into this role. There may be people on the program who speak German. I was just heavily trained in German philosophy in Germany. So um, at any rate, that's where and, both and
0: my... Instead yeah. of using just to introduce yourself, this is, this is a, some, some of the detoxing we're working on here. Can you tell us a little bit about like your PhD and a few other things? This isn't exactly that you just fell into this. You have quite the background, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit.
2: Well, I'll try to do this quite simply. I went as a young woman, I think 19. um, I dreamt of going to Europe. I kept maps all over the world. My grandmother left me $300, with which I I signed up on a fruit boat. And I rode to the Triumph factory in England and ordered a motorcycle and one for my younger brother who was going to go with me. So when we got there, my parents didn't know, of course. When we got there, it's interesting, they had made red motorcycles because we were tasteless Americans. The British, of course, ride, you know, iron gray or something tasteless. So I rode all around Europe on this, bright red, tasteless um, Triumph motorcycle. The part that I remember so clearly in doing this chapter is what it was like to ride through Switzerland and into Italy. And I kept feeling this again and again and again in this chapter, because you would go through the Alps and it was freezing cold often, and it was raining. You'd be just shivering and, and shaking. And then suddenly you would land in Italy, which was warm. And all the, the warm southerly wind with swelling, fragrant blossoms and the ease of living, all of that suddenly hits you. And you cannot be Swiss without that experience of being side by side with those two cultures. It's a physical, I mean, when I was reading this chapter, it kept coming back to me again and again. Anyway, I was headed for Vienna because I wanted to be able to learn German so I could read Rilke in the original. And when I was in Munich, um, I was hit by a streetcar and dragged, dragged about 200 feet. The, the streetcar driver jumped out of the car and came over to me and said, are you guilty? He wanted on the record, not are you alive? At any rate, by the time I got out of the German, it wasn't even a hospital, we are so close to after the war. I was in a schoolhouse and which was a hospital, turned into a hospital, there was only one day left for registration in Munich and none in Vienna. So I ended up I ended up the next eight years or nine years in, in Munich. And um, I guess the only story I will tell is that when I went to the department and said the philosophy department and said that I wanted to to major in philosophy. I mean, their system is very different and very disciplined, and you knock on the table when the professor comes in and what have you. And they said, no, it's not for women. Go down and do literature. No women do this. Well, I was enough of an American with a red motorcycle, it was and a red flag waving in front of me, that I, of course, said, watch me, I'll do it. By the end, I realized they were right. No woman in her right mind would do it if it was so masculine. But at any rate, I did it. And I would sit in these classes that were all male, young, brilliant German males. And a question would be so a philosophical question like, if A can't be A and A is B and so forth. And their minds would just spit out immediately this brilliant answer almost like a computer, very, very fast. And I noticed, and of course I was the only woman, unless there was another nun in there, that what I had to do was take it like a cow, chew it in my cud, let it go all the way down to the gut, to the cud, and then when it was ready, digested, up it would come, and out would come the answer. Now of course by then all these brilliant young males were way off on something else. But at that time, I noticed, and we're talking the late 50s, I mean, 58, 59, no women's movement yet. I noticed that the way I, it was the first time I ever saw that I thought differently. And that when the answer came up out of my cud like a cow, it was much, much deeper. It had a kind of body and breath and depth that those brilliant answers didn't have. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there, that's enough of an introduction.
0: And thank you so much for for sharing with us and we're just gonna enjoy having you as our translator on the side here when we're when we point to you and, and look for your support of what we're reading here. So you had written specifically, there's one word you wanted to point to, and, and um, that's at the very first paragraph that we're on. Is that right?
2: The thing that made me nervous was the sentence which, which says, I feel that my will is paralyzed. And that did not for me suit the whole chapter, the whole, this whole section at all. So I went back and checked it with a magnifying glass. And the word in German for will is the same as in English. It's W-I-L-L-E, villa. And in Jung's thing, it is not villa. It's the word W-O-L-L, which comes from the word meaning to wish, to want. And as you look at that paragraph, you'll see it comes up again and again. I don't know what I want, whether I want this or I want that. So it's really much more wanting or wishing. And so it's saying my wanting or my wishing is really crippled which is much more yin. I, I think today one might say that was depression, but you wouldn't use that very, very, very assertive tone of my will being paralyzed and wanting and wishing. And then we get into the word freude, which is being called joy. But once again, it has those Italian soft breezes all around it and your body bursting into to leaf. And what I would love is if you would, she knows I'm going to call on her, if you would call on Marilyn Hardy, who's also taking the course, if she would talk about the notion of pleasure in the work of Moshe Feldenkrais, that great pioneer. And I think she's willing. So I turn it over to her now.
0: Okay. Thank you, Anne, so much. Um, Brilliant. We really appreciate it. Uh, Marilyn, do you want to raise your hand? I can see you. If you do want to join us for a moment.
3: Well, this is sort of <laughs> unexpected here. When, when Anne brought up the, the word pleasure, it's a word that I do use in my Feldenkrais work quite a bit. And I, and I realized in looking back at my whole experience of embodiment through this method that somehow Feldenkrais introduced a whole different way of learning that separated learning out from the intellectual uh, anxiety around performance and getting things right and wrong and brought me into an experience, an internal experience, uh, an exploration of the body-mind in a way that I began to experience this kind of pleasure, not pleasure both in um, moving um, in an integrated, more integrated way, but also this pleasure of learning, of exploring, of not getting things right, and so it was just more of you a know, deep experience, embodied experience of of organicity, you know, real deep organicity, and and that sense of pleasure that comes from experiencing the wholeness of oneself, rather than the fragmentation you know, that we're we experiencing as um, a culture in a split from body-mind. All of a sudden, it's in this territory where moving, sensing, thinking, and feeling, uh, we're all one. And, and the pleasure that comes from that deep um, recognition from within, not, a, you know, not from up here, but from feeling it deep inside, from that deeper, the deep feminine, whatever you want to call that. But, um...
0: It's a different different place of localizing truth
3: mm-hmm. uh, than yeah. the
0: way that we're all trained in schools and book learning. It's beautiful. Thank you, Marilyn, so much for sharing that. And Anne, and, and mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Feldenkrais is extraordinary work for folks who... Um, who have experienced it, and yeah, there's many other bodywork methods, but um, that that I think I don't want to speak out of turn because I think of what's connected to Feldenkrais. But I'll pause before I mm-hmm. I screw up. Um, <laughs> thank you. And again, I want to say those who are shy or nervous, typically that's where that deep cow intelligence that Anna is speaking to comes from. So we really welcome those those embodied questions that maybe take a little longer. Gary, hi.
4: Hi, hi. Oh, just uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, It's been fascinating. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff here. Um, But the one thing I I just thought, I mean, um, you may have brought this up, but uh, I mean, a lot of the Jewish question uh, with Jung, I mean, obviously, it was something that applied across the board. It was something that, you know, many, many people were occupied at this time. Rudolf Steiner wrote a uh, paper on it and all this sort of thing. But also, you know, Jung it just come out of this bust up with Freud. And one of the first things they, they threw at him was that, oh, he was anti-Semitic and all this kind of thing. And uh, and he, I think it's in his letters, he's even talking about how, ooh, he, you know, get there's a sort, there's a kind of, you reach a certain barrier, whatever it is, a line, and then Freud would kind of pull this sort of thing. and And so, again, you know, it's something that, whether objectively you want to, how are you going to judge the idea that, yes, of course, there's anti-Semitism, but then, of course, it, it, could it possibly create an oversensitivity and that kind of thing, if you have to address it objectively. But it is something that I think Jung was subjected to, or he was around that at the time, just when all this stuff is going on, or just, just before it, too. So, and, if, and again, it's a funny thing that someone pointed out to me, that you know Philemon looks like Freud. So uh, you're just oh. wondering, you know, some of that stuff in there is, you know, it, it's the cultural thing, but it's also his personal. Yeah. You know, kind it's the personal
0: that, unconscious. I mean, it's yeah. so Gary. Um, oh, I, you know, I will say, cause I just pulled it off my shelf too. I like sitting in front of my bookshelf. This is Gary's book. Uh, Jung the mystic. And, um, and Gary, I think you did a wonderful job addressing the quote unquote Jewish question in, in your work. And if you want to say a little more, but, I'd love it um, because there's so much rich history around that stuff in Jung's past. But I think, of course, I mean, for you to point out Freud being Jewish is critical, right? Because he's coming out of that bang up with Freud, that massive breakup. Yeah. And and of course, is, is genuinely wrestling with his own anti-Semitism. But again, part of what I appreciate about the Red Book exposing it all is that he's genuinely wrestling with it.
4: Uh, and then, you know, on you know, the right side, he, he said, you know, we have to keep Jung because, you know, we need a, a good Christian here because otherwise it's just going to be Jewish science, which is exactly what happened 20 whatever years later when the Nazis mm-hmm. came to power. Mm-hmm. It was declared a Jewish science. Mm-hmm. And again, Jung's whole, you know, it's all very murky and uh, his involvement with, uh, I forget the name of the journal right now, but, you know, the psychoanalytical journal that he was editing or being involved with, but he... The Nazis had taken it over. It had become Gleichgeschaltung, you know, had become, you know, conformed to the Nazi ideology. And Jung, uh, people criticized him for not cutting off his ties with it, but he said he remained in order to make sure that some Jewish, you know, psychologists were getting their work printed and all this kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, God forbid any of us would be in that situation and, and we would know exactly the right thing to do, you know? Um, and you know, this is the kind of Richard Noel, and in his book, the Jung cult, he brings all the stuff out about, uh, in Munich and some years earlier than when you were there, um, that whole scene in Schwabing and you have, um, what was called the cosmic circle, but there was a, a, a German, uh, philosopher in Munich there, but he was, he was patently very anti-Semitic and, the Vogue, the Teutonic myths, and all that. There was in this kind of murky blend where all these things were. And you know, some people have used that as a way to take very easy pot shots at Jung for being racist and all that kind of thing. That's Richard Knowles kind of thing. He was waiting, you know, to see who would win, and then he would come out of it. Uh, if the Nazis won, he would have been okay. You know, he's he's accepting the role as being, you know, the the psychologist of the right. But it's
0: so that. not the real history. I mean,
4: no, I, I know, I know. yeah, I know you. I just, know, you I just know, like and again one of the, um, to me one of the most amazing things about the red book is that the new york times wrote a very long and favorable review of it because they would hardly ever give Jung any you know and any attention so i mean there's there's this whole area that you kind of got to wade through and it's difficult to do that without you know you, you do wind up on one side or the other whether you want to be or not because it's it's such it's such a divisive and such a incendiary Thing to talk about that fuses get lit very very quickly.
0: Yeah. Gary, can you really briefly? I know it's not really a brief question, but but speak to Jung as this as the covert agent.
4: Well, he was he, he was this is the story. Uh, Deirdre Bauer.
0: Deirdre
4: Bauer. Uh, I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head right now. Yeah, but she in that huge biography, she, she he got involved. Um, uh, Alan Dulles uh, with what would later become the CIA recruited him to do these psychological profiles of, of the high ranking Nazis and Hitler and all this sort of thing too. I mean, again, I think one of the problems with Jung in this whole situation was that earlier in world war one period, he was making these very injudicious remarks about the the difference between the German psyche and the Jewish psyche and all this kind of thing. And it was not, not the best time to start saying these kinds of things. And it was even a worse time, you know, 20 years later, but, he's here, Dr. Professor, and I'm doing science here, and this is not politics, and this is not about that. And so, you know, I, I have to, you know, I have to defend this as science. And it's like, well, you could defend it science at a, a better time. This was, I think, um uh, 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 or Yolanda Jacobi's kind of argument with him that he never, you know, sort of like Heidegger, even though, I mean, Heidegger never came forth and said anything about his, he actually joined the Nazi party and, you know, and that kind of thing. Jung supped with the devil perhaps you know a bit more than he might not have but he did say that he he messed up you know later on uh leo beck the rabbi leo beck um they met after the war and leo beck had been invited to go to the eranos uh conferences and he he passed up on, or is Scholem, sholim one of them uh, didn't want to go because he said, no, Jung was a Nazi, Jung was a, you know, a racist and all that. And then he after this conversation with Leo Becker. He admitted, yes, I messed up and all this kind of thing. And then he, he absolved him of it. And then Gershom Scholl accepted the invitation to go to Aranos. So, I mean, it's there if you look for it, but again, it's just, I, How should say, I mean, yeah, he's racist insofar as we're all racist, even the people that are telling us we're racist are racist too. So if you want to do it like that, then you know okay fine but at the same time i think it was that element yes he obviously was who he was coming out of swiss culture then but at the same time there was something very personal about like well no this is science and i'm not going to bend and and yeah. you know uh you know mm-hmm. alter my theories in order to meet just like some people today might feel like that about oh this is going to you know uh offend some people but damn political correctness i'm i'm going to say what i i think is you know True, or what the science says, you know. I mean, there's a lot of that today, you know, around issues of gender and things of that sort. So,
0: Thank you, Gary. It's such a complicated topic. I'm grateful for yeah, your yeah, background. Yeah, I mean, in no problems, and thank you. Know, yeah. So, Anne, did you want to say a
2: bit more? We've got a few more hands raised. So, I was just going to point out, Heidegger and and Hannah Arendt. And when I was studying philosophy there, the entire philosophy department mostly was, you know, they had not resisted. My doctor father had. And that made him the only one that was really able to stand up and talk to young people and hold his head up. Because how do you speak about the truth if, you're, if you weren't willing to stand on it?
5: Mm.
2: And Heidegger certainly, anyway, that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank, yeah. thank you, Anne. It's fascinating. So let's see. We've got um, Sophia. Hi.
5: Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hello from Sweden. It's been so nice to following. I haven't been following you live, but this is the first time and it's great. Wow. And thank you for bringing back Anne. I really enjoyed all of her input. And I just wanted to ask about Lilith, because um, uh, you talked quite a lot about her and Carol. I don't know. Have you looked at Lilith in Jung's chart and, and does they, are there other are things there for him that
1: are activated? It's a great question. I haven't looked at Lilith and Jung's chart. The, um, and um, I'm happy to do it and be prepared to talk about it next week. But my own resistance to it was part of what was interesting to me. And then there's a remarkable scholar, um, R- Raphael Patai, who wrote a remarkable book called The Hebrew Goddess, in which he, he um a very scholarly uh, a point of view about tracing lila through the talmud and uh, so i com- i began to see how to incorporate her for- in terms of astrology and mainly how i do it now irrespective of gender and irrespective of sexual preference is that wh- what she said was why should i be second when i was created equal and and uh, completely apart from her um reputed history and how she is per- portrayed in the contemporary world it's very clear that a powerfully erotic woman in charge of herself is you know i think i think hashtag me too has brought her back out of exile no anyway thanks for the question and i will look up where jung's lilith is that would be great thank you so much thank you
0: and carol just to put a fine point on this it's black moon lilith right is the way it shows up astrologically so it's an astrological correlate Lynn, Lynn Bell raised her uh, hand. Lynn her hand uh,
1: so, just because I put the chart up while you were talking, Carol, uh, Lilith is on the midheaven at zero degrees of Sagittarius. This okay. is mean mean Lilith, which is the one that I use mostly. Yeah. Um, but so you could say that Lilith is part of, you know, if you think of the midheaven as part of your destiny, part of the path you're meant to walk, that Lilith meets him on his path, especially mm. in Sagittarius, as. Yeah something other, something foreign, and trans his son, so. Yeah, yeah. well, and, the, and all of the transits, <laughs> all the transits of his, of the beginning of the journey are uh, strong Sagittarian and continue to be in relationship also to, I don't remember what he has in Sagittarius in the 11th. Uh, Mars. Yeah, so there it is. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you both. Fabulous. We love being with all of you. This is really fun. Thank you. Oh, here you are. Hi. Uh,
5: I might be saying the obvious, and um, maybe everybody knows this, but you know, I think I've always felt that the, the, first, the starting point of demystifying racism uh, is to say that everyone is racist. Uh, and I know people have touched upon this, but we have all been brought up in racist and sexist cultures and societies, every single one of us, uh, every color, every culture, etc. And the, the best way to close a, ra- a racist conversation is to say, I'm not racist. Right. Because that basically um, puts yourself and everyone else on the defensive. So um, really, If you want to open your heart, uh, addressing those dark parts of ourselves and racism is you have to start with saying I am racist because I have absorbed, you know, everything that culture gave me for the first 20, 30, 40, 50 years, etc. Right. That's all.
0: Thank you, Lorna. It's it's an important point. And for me, um, you know, and we'll just close here, but the Jungian element of this is, again, that it's not just racism, it's our own shadow. And so if we can understand this as being self-development work versus being ashamed or on the defense or doing this for someone else, all of us are working on becoming more whole. And that is pulling back the projections and recognizing what I'm scared of, i.e., you know, we call black american culture like it's soul soul music all of that you know what again is western culture missing there's an element of soul that gets projected externally so when we pull it back or you know i mean we could go on and on about this forever okay you guys we have one more hand raised uh steve hi i
1: i I actually had a question i was just i I was really struck by the the red of, of, of the red one here yeah and uh um, and I was wondering, I was wondering if if, if there are any thoughts um, about about the the, the element of this, mm. and and the fact that Jung is being associated with the green. Um, I, I was just
3: really intrigued by that, and I just was wondering if there was anything to any pointers you could have to unpacking footnote,
0: that. Footnote twelve gets us straight there for a part of this. And it says, Jung is saying this, when he appears red, when the devil appears red, he is of a fiery, that is passionate nature, and causes wantonness, hate, or unruly love. And again, for me, I think we just start with red as a passion image, and even Carol to say, you know, Lilith was sent to the Red Sea strikes me, but there's this sense of the lopsidedness, I think, of the intellect, and the part of why Western culture has created the devil as red um, which is not the same in every culture, that that's an evil color, right? Um, that for Western culture, it takes on this idea of passion, it, it takes on the idea of evil. That's part of where I go. The green is he comes back to life. He, he bursts into a uh, uh, leaf when he pulls some of the passion back. Then he comes into life in a different way. So the green becomes the fertile existence and embodied existence. Uh, Carol, what do you think?
1: You know, red and green are complements on the color wheel. That's the other thing that really struck me is, and if you think about spring, one of the things that's always amazing to me about spring is all the new growth is red. You know that at the tips of grass and at the tips of leaves, and that that everything is that's life. You know, and that everything eventually takes on. A, a, a darker hue of green. So I, that's the thing that I was most struck by, by this particular image of, of these two compl- complementarities uh, in, a, in a physical sense on the color wheel are balancing each other. And that, it's, that the redness actually has brought him to life. Mm-hmm.
0: It shifts us out of the, re- the black, white binary. Yeah, get, yeah. Steve, yeah. regarding the alchemical, what you suggested about the rubato, I think let's try to get into that another time because it's a really great question. But that same fiery element of passion, sexuality, whatever that element alchemically is, I I think it brings up a lot. And for folks who are watching their dreams, color is fascinating in the dream world. Um, You can start to see colors. You know, people can go through just like Picasso or whatever. There's a blue phase, and then there's a red phase. And you can start to really track in your own dreams what, what rooms are colored what and things Things start to shift, and and you're watching your own typology transform. It's pretty cool. Okay, I'm rushing because I want to let everyone leave. Uh, We're way over time. (laughs) Love to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All of you. Stay well. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Ann Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.